Hello. You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. Philosopher Gilbert Ryle said that reality is thick. Anthropologist Clifford Geertz utilizes this concept of reality being thick and helping us to understand how to interpret cultures. For me, two images serve as analogies for this thickness. One is that of a tapestry or carpet that has hundreds of different brightly colored interwoven threads. The other is that of a geological stratification of things like mountains and canyons. Because of the influence of prominent themes from ancient Greek philosophy, the mindset of Western civilization has striven for simplicity, seeking the essence of something, breaking things down by analysis into simplified, understandable parts, finding the single, correct, crystallizing point of view, etc. Such a mindset leads to a blindness or the intentional rejecting and ignoring of the thickness of things. Things that get overlooked or dismissed that in truth really matter after all. For many, religion is seen simply as the source of conflict, division, and violence that has produced prejudice, hatred, oppression, cruelties, and massive deaths through enslavements, persecutions, genocides, and more. Madeleine Albright, in her book, The Mighty and the Almighty, Reflections on America, God, and World Affairs, confesses that the theories of diplomacy that have been dominant especially during the Cold War reflect this negative understanding of religion. Consequently, the goal of diplomatic negotiations was to bracket out religion and its complicated and negative legacy. The goals of diplomacy were to enable people to seek and find common, non-religious, universal values upon which to base conversation and agreements. Yet, to the surprise of most, in the vacuum that followed the end of the Cold War, religion resurged and thrived around the globe, especially in places of former oppressions. The result is that now and for the foreseeable future, religion has pulled up a permanent chair to the tables of diplomacy. Albright again confesses that few were prepared for this reality and that she, along with numerous others, have been scrambling to rethink and revise their understanding. It is true that religion has been the source of division, conflict, violence, war, and great atrocities. But in my mind, what took so many of those active in diplomacy by such surprise is the consequence of the blindness that chose to ignore the thickness of reality. Because what is also true is that religion has also always been a source of significant good and major achievements in making the world better and in creating hope for a better future. In seeking to correct and adjust her own understanding of this change in circumstances, some of those with whom Albright consulted were religious scholars. What I think surprised Albright in what she learned from religious scholars, and an essential point upon which I want to build, is the encouragement 
and I quote, to see religion more as a potential means of reconciliation than as a source of conflict. My purpose in this series on peace building is to enable you, my beloved listeners, to come to see religion with just such a potential as a means of reconciliation. To achieve this goal, I am wanting you to be introduced to those wonderful people who have been and are continuing to achieve major advances in peace work around the world, specifically by drawing upon resources for this peace work from their respective faiths, scripture, and heritages. Today, I want to focus on Islam. In the context of our present culture in the United States, Islam is the focal point of the greatest fear, misperceptions, misunderstandings, and misinformation that drives and motivates the perceptions of vast numbers of us. To challenge all these misperceptions, misunderstandings, and misinformation, I want to introduce you to my wonderful and delightful guest, who has long been involved in Muslim peace work, Chaplain Rabia Terry Harris. Chaplain Harris is the founder of the Muslim Peace Fellowship, which is an associate organization of the Fellowship of Reconciliation. It was begun in 1994, and she has nurtured it ever since. She is the child of a Jewish father and a Christian mother, but embraced Islam in 1978, receiving her religious education through the Halveti Jarahi order. She holds a B.A. in religion from Princeton University, a master's in Middle Eastern languages and cultures from Columbia University, and a graduate certificate in Islamic chaplaincy from Hartford Seminary. As a theorist and investigator in Islamic peacebuilding and multi-religious solidarity for justice, Rabia writes extensively and has lectured and offered workshops nationally and internationally. Currently, Rabia serves as chaplain and scholar-in-residence at the Community of Living Traditions at Stony Point Center and an Abrahamic residential community devoted to the pursuit of peace and justice through earth care and hospitality. Welcome, Rabia. Thank you for being with me today. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So why don't we begin by letting you kind of tell your own spiritual pilgrimage, and especially as that led you into your peace work. Oh, well, um, I've been a Muslim since 1978, but I originally was born into an interreligious household. My mother's side of the family is Christian, uh, Episcopalian in recent generations, Catholic before that. And my father's side of the family is Jewish from, from Eastern Europe and Russia. And uh, my parents met in the aftermath of World War II and fell in love and decided that they were going to get married. They were both um, older for the time. My mother was in her late 30s, and she was so happy to have the opportunity to raise some children. And my father was much taken with her. And even though it was not uh, traditional in Jewish households to marry out at that time. My grandmother, my Jewish grandmother, was so glad that my father had gotten through the war. Uh, he, mm. was a, 
you know, in the United States forces. He, she was so glad that her son had survived that he could do anything. He could do no wrong. So, (laughs) so she accepted the, the outsider in-law. And I was born into that family, a very lively, culturally active family in the suburbs of Philadelphia that in order to make things simple for themselves, uh, decided not to have any religious education in the home. So my younger brother and I were brought up with a lot of um, cultural exposures, but the only religious exposures we got were the holidays that we sep- celebrated with both sets of, of families. With my, We celebrated Jewish holidays with my father's family, and we celebrated Christian holidays with my mother's family. And as it is when, when we're growing up, my, we took that to be perfectly obvious, ordinary, and, and not strange whatsoever, because children take whatever way they're brought up to be the way everybody is. Uh, and so I was brought up taking it for granted that there were multiple ways of approaching God. Mm-hmm. And it was only much later in life that I began to realize that that was an unusual background. And of course, in recent decades, it's been commoner and commoner for people to marry across religious boundaries. But in my parents' time, it was still quite rare. And so I had to come into an understanding that I had um, a special kind of inheritance from my parents. And it was interesting because the upshot of that for my brother was that he had no interest in religion whatsoever. But I had an, uh, an over riding interest in religion and spirituality. I was more interested in that than anything else. Mm. So uh, I took some three years off between high school and college. I had been accepted to college. I was good at at academics. And and so I wasn't really worried about moving forward in that direction. I had been accepted to school. I went to Princeton University. Um, But I wanted to explore and one of the things that I wanted to explore was, where should I go spiritually? I knew that I wanted a spiritual path. And I knew that I didn't want to leave behind the sort of breadth that I had received from my parents. I wanted that sort of embrace of the, of the variousness and adventure of the world. I didn't want to shut myself into one narrow spot. But on the other hand, I knew that I needed a spiritual center and that a spiritual center required a coherent practice. So I was in an unusual position because my parents were not imposing on me. My father was not requiring me to to become a Jew. My mother was not requiring me to become a Christian. And the world seemed open. I explored. I went to a lot of teachers. I read many scriptures. And I found myself drawn in the direction of Sufi Islam, which is the mystical or experiential dimension of Islam. And that was very surprising to me because when I did my first exploration of holy books and I read an English translation of the Quran, I wasn't attracted to the Quran at all initially. I was kind of put off by it and I said, I don't get this. This doesn't seem to make sense to me. This doesn't speak to me. But then I ran into the writings of Jalaluddin Rumi, one of the great saints of Islam, um, and also a, a, a uh, 
world-renowned poet at the level in, in Persian of, of Shakespeare in, in English. And I started to read him and his affection for the Quran was so great and his attitude toward it was, was so loving and warm and insightful that I said, well, what have I missed here? What am I not seeing? What am I not reading in this translation? And when I um, decided it was time for me to go back to school because I wanted to mend fences with my parents and fulfill their wishes for me, uh, I said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to study Arabic. I still hadn't made a religious commitment. I was just intrigued. I'm going to study Arabic because I want to read the Quran in the original and find out what I'm not seeing. And this was back before all of the um, sort of fraught, angsty relations between Islam and the United States began. Nobody knew any Muslims from the old countries. The only place that people even heard the word Muslim was with regard to the Nation of Islam and the, and the Black Power Movement in the early days of, the, of, of civil rights. So that was not yet in my sphere. My opening into, into those realities came much later in my life. So Islam was, was completely unknown. And there was no prejudice in my mind or the minds of people around me about what it was or might be. There was no um, pre-existing assumption about the religion. I just wanted to know how come what I had read and what this wonderful writer was saying didn't seem to cohere. So I went back to school and I studied Arabic. And in the first year of Arabic, they give um, Quranic texts as study material because it's the foundation of the classical language, not for religious reasons, but for linguistic reasons. Have a look at some of these Quranic texts and see how they work as language. And the first thing that I saw in my first year as an Arabic student was that the language on the page and the language that I had read in translation had almost nothing to do with one another. That astounded me because the way that Arabic works is multivalent. It has multiple levels. Language words link from one place to another through their roots, much as Hebrew in the Hebrew Bible does, as I learned later. And there were depths and depths of, of um, resonance and implication in the chronic text that were completely wiped out in the English translation. You just didn't see them. And I said, oh, ho, that's interesting. And mm. that started me in two directions. One of them was in, in a greater interest in what was actually going on in the Quran, which began to fascinate me as a, as a text and also about what translation did, how it worked, and how it shaped our minds and our ways of thinking about things that we were receiving, because there is such a difference. So both of those um, commitments um, have traveled with me through my years as a freshman in, in college all the way to the present day. What is translation? How does it work? What are its responsibilities? Not just language translation, but cultural translation. How do we move understandings, ideas, experiences from one frame to another without doing them an injustice? It's very important. 
And also, the more I read into the Quran, the more and more it spoke to me, the more intrigued I became. Until finally, in my fourth year of college, I met an actual Sufi master. I met a teacher from the original tradition, and he was uh, a Turkish teacher named Tosun Bayrak Efendi. May God be pleased with his soul. Uh, a Turkish American who had been asked to bring a traditional uh, spiritual order to the United States and root it here. And I met him and he impressed me so much as a human being that I said, I'm going to study with this man. I'm going to make my commitment now. This is the way that I should go. And I did. And that's when I became a Muslim in 1978. And then I was his student for the next 40 years. Okay. Well, how did that lead you then into your, in your peace work? Well, the kind of Islam that we were taught was an embracing Islam. What I had been looking for was a spiritual perspective that would bring together all the pieces of my past that would not reject my father's tradition and what that brought, that would not reject my mother's tradition and what that brought, but that would allow me to integrate them into a coherent way of life. And I found that in the kind of Islam that Tosun Effendi, Effendi is a title, right? Meaning, you know, like, sir, mister, that Tosun Effendi uh, was teaching. And so I took that peaceful acceptance of multiplicity and of other ways of life as foundational to the way I understood Islam. So later on, as things began to explode, and of course the situation with the Islamic world for Americans began to explode as far back as, as 1979 with the Iranian hostage crisis, when all of a sudden people were terrified, who are these you know, um, horrible people in Iran who are holding our people captive in the embassy? And all sorts of ideas about what Islam was and must, you know, had in mind for the U.S. began to develop and, in fact, metastasize in this country. You know, before all that happened, I had seen a very different kind of Islam. And Mm -hmm. so the question became, well, what's the relationship between what I've been taught and what's going on out there? And after some years of study... I became involved with the work in which I mean I lived in completely internally up to the, the the practice and the learning and practice of Islam within a Sufi community for years. And then I turned out we're and joined the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which you may have heard of. It's um, more than a hundred years old now. It's an interreligious peace and justice organization devoted to the practice of nonviolence that's been in existence internationally for more than a century. And I became involved with the Fellowship of Reconciliation because back in the early 90s, they were assisting my teacher in uh, a wonderful project called the Bosnian Student Project, which was bringing Bosnian youth refugees out of the war zone into the United States to continue their education. That's a whole story in itself. When that alliance was made between our mosque, the Jirahi Order of America Mosque, and the Fellowship of Reconciliation, my teacher told me when a job came up over at FOR, why don't you go and get that job? And I was skeptical about it, but I did. And once I went and joined FOR, 
the whole world of social action opened up to me. I became mm. an editor at FOR's magazine, where I'm now the editor to this day, although I had some years off in between. <laughs> you know, I, I've come back to FOR. I work at the editor on Fellowship Magazine. But while I was at FOR, it was like uh, receiving a postgraduate education in um, political science. All my earlier academic education had been in religion and in Middle Eastern cultures, right? Now, FOR took me into social justice work and I began to see, well, hey, nobody is sharing what we have learned at the mosque with the world. It's not going on. We're hearing a lot about um, very sort of uh, violent interpretations of political Islam but we're not hearing anything about what I've actually been trained in as a Muslim. Why not? And the way that FOR is organized, it has under its umbrella a number of um, single denomination or single faith peace fellowships. So there's all kinds of Christian peace fellowships. You, I'm sure, are familiar with the Baptist Peace Fellowship and also, you know, lots of other Christian peace fellowships. There's a Jewish peace fellowship that predates World War II. There's a Buddhist Peace Fellowship. There's lots of them. There was no Muslim Peace Fellowship when I joined FOR. I said, well, why not? And what I was told is, well, we tried organizing one a couple of times, and we were not able to do it. So I said, I can't be, I can't fail any worse than you, so I might as well give it a try. <laughs> and so that began. Yeah. And that began at that time. Yeah, that's wonderful. Right. Well, so teach us then uh, this side of Islam. Uh, tell us about this side of Islam, because as you know, for most of us that that we get from Islam is is from the news or from a a college class, you know, that we took and sure. long forgotten. Uh, and so, yeah, teach us about this side of Islam. It's very important to recognize that that Islam is founded on the teaching of the Quran and the example of Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, who um, came in the, what, seventh century of the common era to um, communicate to the, to the peoples of the Arabian Peninsula and afterwards to the peoples of the world, what he understood to be the foundational spiritual teaching that had come to every community before his time. And the Arabs of the peninsula were understood to be the last, to receive a teaching that had come to all the communities of the planet about the unity of God, human responsibility to the divine, and the necessity of our caring for the planet and for each other. Of course, nobody spoke about the planet in those days, but we spoke about the earth, about the land, about the creation, since forever, from the dawn of time, people have understood that there was something there to be in which, which embraced us and which we were responsible to in some way. So Islam taught to accept that all peoples and all creatures belong to the same divine universe produced by one deity, one force that kept us all in existence and to which at the other end of our lives we were accountable. That human beings are morally accountable 
and the teaching of the general resurrection and the day of judgment is central to understanding that what we do in this world actually matter. And the, that God has sent us here, not at random, not by mistake, not because we were bad, although there's a story of, of a mistake in our past, in the human past, right? But because we were designed to do a job here. And that the great challenge for us is to recover the job that we're supposed to do here and do it because we're going to be accountable for whether or not we've done it in the end. And that the mercy of God has sent over and over again, repeatedly since the beginning of history through the time of the prophet Muhammad in very clearly revealed terms, messengers carrying reiterations of this message in forms appropriate to different communities over and over again. And then what Muslims believe is that from the time of Prophet Muhammad, everything is present that we need to know. God has sent everything that human beings need to know through all of these people, which we call messengers. They bring new dispensations and prophets who reteach the dispensations already in the world, bring them back to mind and help communities to become accountable to what they are um, responsible toward. And then after time of Prophet Muhammad, there are people who come to remind us what we have over and over again to the end of time. We will never be without divine teaching helping us to become responsible. And then either we do or we don't. And knowing that what we do matters and that there is only one God uniting us all, but many, many teachers with different techniques, right, is essential to the kind of Islam that I learned. So in that world, there is no room for trying to force your way of doing things on top of somebody else's. Mm. There's no room for that. Okay. Okay? Yeah. All right. Well, then, so what, what specific texts uh, do you draw from? Uh, teachings do you draw from? Oh, there's so many of them that I can't even begin to tell you. The resources for for understanding peace and Islam are vast. What I find particularly um, useful are, or are a few key texts for myself. There's a wonderful Quranic verse which says, um, let there be no compulsion in religion. That's the foundation for me. Mm. That, is, that is so clear, so direct, that people who want to sort of weasel their way around that, I don't know how they can face that text and, and not be ashamed. Let there be no compulsion in religion is a divine commandment. So that's one that I rest on. Where does that come from? Oh, it's Quranic. I, I didn't prepare for you today, chapter and verse, because I was <laughs> to be talking to Muslims, right? Yeah, yeah. But if you want to look them up, all you have to do is Google them. They're all there. Okay. Right? So it's there. Um, another one that's very important to me is um, the, the great affirmation of um, diversity. 
If God had so willed, he would have made you one community, but he wishes to try you in that which he has given you. So compete with one another in good works. Mm. Okay. That's very beautiful. Yeah. That's very beautiful. Because we don't often compete with each other in good works, do we? We compete with each other in rhetoric. Yeah. And <laughs> and can who can throw their weight around most? Right. Most. That's not what God is asking for us to do. Um in your book that you co-authored with uh Ken Sehested and uh Lynn Got Gottlieb. Yeah. Uh one of the ones is um God Almighty and Glorious says, Oh my servants, I have forbidden oppression for myself and have made it forbidden among you. So do not oppress one another, yeah. oh my servants. I like that one. It's very, very, it's beautiful. And and God says also, m multiple times in the Quran, you know, we have a, a tendency, all people who, who use the name of God have a tendency to collapse the divine grandeur into things that we can understand. And unfortunately, many of us tend to impose on our image of God um, attributes which are not worthy of the divine. And one of them is, is a kind of mean-spiritedness. Lots of us in the back of our heads see God as, as um, being willing to punish us for, for little infractions that we never intended. Somehow, mm. God is out to get us. We right. be bad and God is out to get us. And personally, I think this comes from bad experiences in infancy. That they have something to do with 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 um, our configuration of how we understand our parents on a bad day, right? But have, yeah. but have very little to do with the divine. And so, you know, God says in in the Quran over and over again, um, God is never unjust. God is never unjust to the servants, but the servants, human beings, are unjust to themselves. Mm. And so, we should not. Pay, pin our, our mean-spiritedness on the divine. And we should not pin our vengefulness or our cruelty or our small-mindedness on the divine either. We should take responsibility for those and work to get them out of our picture of what God is. Yeah, it reminds me of that um, famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards of sinners in the hands of an angry God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's tricky to think like that. You can get yeah. in trouble thinking like that. You know, because what God says is anything that, good, that, that is good that comes to you comes from God. And anything that's bad that comes to you comes from yourselves. God doesn't do that. You bring it on yourself. God sends all of these messengers and all of these teachers to get us out of that situation. Well, I noticed in your book, uh, uh, going back to what you had said a little bit earlier about uh, diversity of understanding and yeah. interpretation. Uh, let me read a little bit uh, that I checked off that I like. This is on uh, page 61 of the book. Um, in the midst of civil war in the early post-prophetic community, the fierce opponents of the general spiritual and political leader Ali summoned him to negotiations on the basis of the book of God. He went, but his comment was, that to which they call me is words on paper. It needs, it needs interpreters, and interpreters are people. Yeah. No matter how much we might wish it otherwise, 
There is no removing ourselves from the process of divine guidance. The insights we are granted ultimately depend on our own faculty of conscience. Yes, it's very important to realize that, I believe. Now, the end of the quote is interpreters. For your listeners, the interpreters are people. After that, that's my commentary. That comes. Okay. Right? <laughs> so <laughs> it's important to realize that. But that takes, me, takes us back to my original fascination with, with translation. Interpreters are people. And the text is not so easily collapsed. If we collapse the sacred text into a flat two-dimensional object, we're doing that. It's not God that's doing that. It's not the text that's doing that. We're doing that. And we're collapsing that text for a reason. For some, we are motivated to do that for some reason. And it's important that we come to know what motivates ourselves or our, or our fellow human beings to want to flatten reality in such a way. Well, I, um, I had read from the book that inspired this series, uh, Peace Building or Peacemaking and the Challenge of Violence in World Religions by uh, uh, Dr. Irfan Omar and uh, Michael Dufay. Uh, in Dr. Omar's article, uh, he made a big emphasis upon uh, clarifying the understanding of jihad, uh, and you do you do that as well. So help us understand that a little more fully. Yeah, there's so much fear around this conception of jihad. Um, and first of all, before we go back to the roots of the word and what it meant in the prophetic usage and in the Quran, we need to ex accept that the world the word has been exploited for political reasons. That is really true. Just as you know, in the in the Christian context, there's this word crusade. And right. the notion of crusade, um, if you examine it historically, is kind of hair raising. And yet people have a, a, a mythology of the wonderful, you know, forward movement of the right against the wrong, which is attached to the word crusade. And political actors in Christendom forever have used that mythology to move their political agendas forward. And the same thing has happened with the word jihad. In Muslim context, jihad has a positive valence. It means working for the right. The actual translation of the word, the meaning of the word in the Quranic and the prophetic context is struggle. Jihad means effort. It means you're undertaking an effort for God's sake. In later Islamic history, different kinds of political regimes have wanted to say, well, when we go out there and fight, it's really a jihad for God's sake. You're just as if, you know, uh, a pope or a king in medieval Europe had said, let's go on crusade to rouse people to do something for God's sake that was really motivated from somewhere else, right? There are actors who want to rouse people to jihad because they want to get people organized behind them. But whether that's for God's sake is very dubious, very dubious. In the Quran and in the prophetic experience, jihad was used long before any kind of armed struggle was ever authorized. The prophet taught 13 years in Mecca and about another 10 years in another city, Medina, and the armed struggle of Islam didn't begin until the, the community 
moved to Medina and began to be besieged by, by its opponents. In the 13 years in which Islam began in Mecca, nonviolence was mandated for the community. No kind of um, active resistance was permitted at that time. But the word jihad was in regular use because mm. it meant struggle. Mm. So at that time, all, all the struggle was unarmed struggle. Later, the element of armed struggle came into the picture. And in other sorts of revolutionary or social change movements, you'll find that um, dilemma also. Do we remain with unarmed struggle or is it time that we have to move to, unarmed, to armed struggle in order to defend ourselves? And that was the dilemma in the early prophetic community too. The um, transition was only made after a divine revelation came to authorize it. Before that, the, Pro the Prophet Muhammad absolutely refused to allow armed struggle. Then it became permissible under strict limits. And once armed struggle became permissible, jihad was also applied to some instances of armed struggle. But it doesn't mean under any circumstances, holy war. The notion of holy war doesn't exist in Islam. The word for war is completely different from the word for, for struggle. Jihad is struggle, harb is war. There's no authorization of war ever. Now, no. That's, that's the foundational usage of the word. Do we still have need for jihad in the world? Oh, oh that will never cease. But armed struggle, the need for armed struggle is, is in our time, uh, still as fraught as it was in the prophet's time and, and highly problematic. My um, argument is that the conditions for armed struggle laid down by the Quran and the prophetic example are not now met. And if those conditions are not met, then our armed struggle is not lawful for a Muslim in our day. Not everybody agrees with me. That's our position. Mm. Okay. Um, well, and part of what I, I understood in, in reading your book and in, in, in Dr. Omar's uh, article was that a lot of what jihad involves is a, is a struggle with yourself. Oh, that's, that's, that's the deep spiritual tradition of Islam. Not only social struggle, which, in, by the way, jihad not only refers to, to, to armed struggle, it also refers to education, teaching, see, seeking knowledge, and other sorts of struggle which are necessary for establishing a community on a, on a sound basis. But the interior jihad has to do with seeing ourselves as we are. And that's frequently very uncomfortable to, to come to learn what our real motivations are, not just our high aspirations, which also exist, right? But those motivations which we would be happiest to disown and which we tend to project onto the other guy. Where are they in me? How are they involving my religion on that which is unworthy of it? How are they corrupting my daily life, my relations with my fellow human beings and with the world around me to which I'm responsible. Because we believe that when the day of judgment comes and we face God, all this self-delusion will vanish and we'll see it anyway. And then it will be too late to do anything about it. So we had better get to know ourselves here and begin the work of making ourselves more useful instruments 
of God's peace. Well, and so in in that in that vein, um, what specifically was the work of the Muslim Peace Fellowship? Uh, what were the kind of things that you do? Well, in that what do we do? We're still out there. These days, we're kind of more of a of a resource center and kind of think tank. We've been in, in existence since 1994. Um, we wanted to make it clear that there was a place for Muslims who um, held views on the primacy of peace to come together, find each other, and speak to the world. And so what we do is we, we um, have helped circulate awareness of the tradition of peace in Islam. That was much more important in earlier years than it is now because, um, for well, for geopolitical reasons, which are much, take a lot of time to explore. But when I first came, when the Muslim Peace Fellowship was, was first founded, um, a, a, a very hardline school of Islam out of Saudi Arabia had enormous global influence and that is a very aggressive, um, exclusivist school. And we needed to show that um, this alternative um, had equal or greater roots in the tradition and, and was a universal, was an Islamic universal, that a peace mentality was an Islamic universal. In recent years, the power of that force has um, both become more intense and less widespread. What can I say? As mm. the as that sense that Islam must must um, be prevalent over everything has become more contested in the world, it's also become more virulent, and that's where you get stuff like Al Qaeda um, and the other and uh, you know ISIS and the forces that we see in the news. They are desperate to hold on to a worldview that actually has less takes up less and less territory in the Islamic world. And that's why the worst damage they do is to other Muslims because they need to propose that and in, insist upon it. But when Muslim Peace Fellowship started, lots of people were considering that point of view as possibly valid. And now because of, not just because of our work, but because of a massive work in the community of Islam in which, in which Muslim Peace Fellowship had a modest but real role, right? Um, the sense that that's an acceptable way to be has faded from the scene. It's ebbed from the scene. That influence simply doesn't have the kind of uh, persuasiveness that once it did. And that was our first job, is to argue against that way of looking at Islam. Hmm. Okay. Well, you've been making a transition in your own personal life. Uh, tell us about that transition. Oh, well, you know, it's a, it's a complicated kind of a scene. I mean, after, when I went to work for, for FOR, I worked for 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 13 years, and, and that we founded Muslim Peace Fellowship at that time, and we were looking for ways to make um, a public statement of peaceful Islam and to make um, interfaith alliances for social justice causes. And we did that for a long time. So I built my understanding of a, of a, you know, sort of global vision of the world and what was necessary on the large scale. And the more I did that, the more I realized, well, shoot, 
um, I don't know how to interact with people, individuals properly. I was brought up in a very sheltered and unusual kind of a way. And through FR, I was meeting people who were involved in tremendous struggles and who had had great difficulties and trials, which were really beyond my, my comprehension in terms of experience. And I felt ashamed because what I discovered among a lot of peace people was uh, 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 that it was very easy for people who had no experience of what real suffering was to tell other people how to behave. And I didn't want to be there. I wanted to know how to come from the person that I was to make a real connection to people who were in difficult situations that were beyond my understanding, honor them and make myself of some service to them somehow. And so um, there, there came a point where I decided I was going to become a chaplain. And that became possible because a wonderful um, Islamic Canadian scholar um, also named Ingrid, Ingrid Matson had founded at Hartford Seminary in Connecticut an Islamic chaplaincy program. And so I went and studied in that Islamic chaplaincy program and began, and then I went into something that many Christians will be familiar with, which is clinical pastoral education, which is, of course, a, a multi-religious uh, training. So I went into a number of years of clinical pastoral education and expanded my capacity to be present with other human beings. Because it's one thing to be a person of ideas, and it's quite another thing to learn how to activate yourself with a personal part. And so uh, once that took a lot, a lot of time, it took personal risk and it, it exposed me to uh, many human situations that had been outside my previous experience and that ripened me as a person. That ripened me, made me useful and made my religion useful and made my, um, my theology and my, my political ideas useful. So I began to practice as a chaplain with that context. And once I was practicing as a chaplain, um, a colleague, I was still connected to FOR and a colleague from FOR, um, first it was at that time, the wonderful man since passed away, God bless him, Mark Johnson, who was the executive director of, of FOR, brought me together with um, Rick Ufford Chase, who was the director of the Presbyterian Peace Fellowship. And we began to have the three of us a conversation about what's the next step in inter-religious relations. And um, Rick was at that time also the director or co-director with his wife, Kitty Ufford Chase of Stony Point Center, which is a facility of Presbyterian Church USA in New York State. And he said, well, we're founding we want to found a multi-faith community at Stony Point Center. Will you come? I said, oh, yes, I will come. And Lynn Gottlieb, Rabbi Lynn Gottlieb, with whom we wrote in that book you quoted earlier, was also invited to become a, um, a founder of what, what came to be known as the Community of Living Traditions. So for the past 10 years, we have been building an experiment on what it means to come together as people of many traditions who want to maintain the integrity of our traditions and yet honor each other, honor each other's spirituality and develop solidarity in, in social justice causes. What does it mean to live like that 
day by day together. And we've been doing that for 10 years. And that's been a whole astonishing adventure. And at this point, Community of Living Traditions is beginning to detach from Stony Point Center and, and um, we will uh, relocate ourselves elsewhere as COVID wanes, that will be clearer exactly how we're gonna do that. We're very grateful to the center for, for being our incubator, um, but we hope to go on and build a network of people who want to make a practical discipline out of intentionally living together for the sake of a of a, uh, a peaceful future. Now, how does that? How does that, give us some idea about how that works in a, in a daily life? I mean, how do you interact with each other in a daily experience? And uh, are you living in a communal home, or is it? We a... we live in. We were enabled to live for many years as a community. We don't. Some of us share. Those of us who are single. Some of us have, have shared buildings. You know, and had common households and. Some of us are married and we've had separate households, but, but Stony Point Center, while Rick and Kitty Offer Chase were co-directors, allowed us a physical place to be, to live like a little village. Okay. And, and we lived as a village together. And at this point, we may, we're planning to become perhaps a, a series of villages. And okay. that we're just at the beginning of that transformation. And if any of your, actually, if any of your listeners are interested in that, I would encourage them to get in touch with me. We could talk. Okay. Well, is, is there like a, a shared economy as well? Uh, it's, all in, it's all in development. The way that we used to do things before COVID is that we were involved in the hospitality work of Stony Point Center very deeply. And so we helped to build that outreach of the center. And we were also supported by the hospitality business of the center, which of course is a, is a, function of the Presbyterian Church USA. But unfortunately, COVID has shut down almost completely the hospitality business throughout the United States and throughout the world. And so Stony Point Center also has, has contracted uh, dramatically. And while it's not done, it's not in a position to support our community anymore. So we now have, Stony Point Center now has one um, small section of its campus open and I recommend to people if they want a place in New York State to stay as things <laughs> open up again, Stony Point Center is a beautiful place to stay. But Community of Living Traditions is, is um, looking to find uh, another footing on which to stand at this time. Well, in our, in our preparation conversations that we had for this, you mentioned that um, you wanted to conclude our uh, conversation uh, with a discussion of the divine name that Ken... Sahestid had sent you. Yeah, there, the, the spiritual teaching of Islam makes much of, of a saying of the prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, that, that, that uh, God has 99 names, 100 minus one. The other one is said to be God, right? But 99 specific names. And Allah, of course, is just the Arabic word for God. It's not a God. It's the Arabic word for God. Um, Arab Christians use the word Allah for God. You know, Arabic-speaking Jews use the word Allah for God. It's just the Arabic word for God, right? So there's God. And then there are the names through which people come into relationship with God, the ways that we see God that are not just from our side, but that God has 
taught us names of God, relationships with God that God has taught us. And the, the saying of prophet goes on, uh, and whoever calls on God from, from all of those directions, through all of those names, will enter paradise, which is a beautiful, you know, will come into heaven. It's a beautiful um, tradition. So what it invites us to is, is recognizing the, the vastness of possible perspectives on divine reality. And there's, a and there's a lovely verse in the Quran which says, call upon God or call upon um, the most compassionate. By whichever name you call, to God belong the most beautiful name. So something that we can ask ourselves, you know, is not only by what, what is most beautiful in the way that I see God? You know, what is at the core of my heart's response to the divine? But also, what is most beautiful in the way my neighbor sees and responds to God? Because if I can begin to honor and appreciate the way that my neighbor responds to God, my understanding of the divine will increase. And perhaps at some point, it will become large enough and embracing enough and generous enough that I may find myself in the presence of heaven. That's a wonderful image. That's a wonderful understanding. I am deeply grateful and honored uh, that you have shared your time and your wisdom today. Uh, thank you for what you do, continue to do, uh, and blessings. David, thank you. Bless you also. Bless your work. Bless all of your listeners. And, and may all of us become better servants of the mercy of God. Amen. You're listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the Worship Project by going to the website theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth.